Welcome to the Plan Simple Podcast. I am your host, Mia Moran. Moms have the power to change the future, but not if we're stressed out and exhausted. Looking at food, lifestyle, spirituality, and work, the Plan Simple Podcast is for busy moms who want to create a healthier and happier future. Listen in for inspirational conversations and valuable strategies to plan for your best life. Hey, welcome to this episode of the Plan Simple Podcast. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I was writing this morning, which is a practice I do every morning. And sometimes I just let myself go for three pages. I love the practice called Morning Pages from Julia Cameron. And for years, I have just woken up and just committed to writing whatever comes out on three pages. And sometimes I think through things a little bit more concretely. Maybe I've gotten a tip from a coach or a program or a you know, email message that has resonated with me and I'll write on that concept. And today I was thinking about mothering because right now Syl and I are working together to be ready to meet a group of amazing mamas on Wednesday for Easeful Motherhood for six Wednesdays where we're really going to lean into motherhood right now, what that looks like. It's a little different than it was. We've, we're not the same people that we were 18 months ago. And I think there's this whole mix of mourning of what was and a relief of what is, and maybe a relief that the kids are back into a more structured educational mode um, because it's September, whether you're homeschooling or you've put them back into school. And there's just a lot to think about, and I've just talked to so many people this week who are wondering what to do with themselves and having a hard time concentrating on the things that they thought they really wanted to do now that they have this new felt sense of freedom. So we're going to dive into all of that in Easeful mothering, Motherhood and more and get, just give you some tools that are going to be really helpful. Syl is my mentor. She's my mama mentor. I found her a year ago. She came into my life through my really good friend, Sarah Jenks. She's amazing. And I just want everyone in my community who is a mother and really thinking about how to show up as a mother in the most thoughtful way to learn from her. I keep getting a lot of questions about, you know, I'm super excited for this. I can't believe you're doing this. I just, it's kind of busy right now. It's kind of overwhelming. Maybe I'll do it next time. So I just want to say like, I don't know if there's going to be a next time. Not that I wouldn't want to do this all the time, but this is really a response to now. And if you're feeling any overwhelm, if you're feeling like you don't have time, if but still that your role of showing up for your kids, um, I don't know, has like a quality of stress or unfulfillment, you are going to love this six weeks. It will make such a world of difference to your life. So... I didn't even mean to share about that right now, but the reason I'm pressing record on this episode is because I've just been thinking about my own motherhood journey and the things that have been really important to me. So what I thought I would do is just press record on a on an episode that's 
the things that were coming up in my journaling prompts this morning is things that really made an impact to me along the way as a mom. And most of them are things that I've built on. Most of them are things that came into my awareness. They had one variation and then they they grew and just became these really important facets at different phases of my own you know, work as a human and as a mother and, you know, literal work of like balancing work and home and also the different phases of my kids. All right. So here it goes. So I'm going to start with the first one, which is, and these are all kind of like, I guess let's call them parenting concepts. And the first one is that family dinner is non-negotiable. This is a concept, a belief that has been with me since, well, always, and really since my kids could eat. And I'm going to tell you a little bit the origin of each of these. Most of them are from a book I read, a talk I went to, um, something I learned along the way in life. But this one is actually from my parents. So dinner being non-negotiable is something, that's just the way I grew up. That's how it was. We always had family dinner. So I actually didn't know that it worked any other way. (laughs) And I went away to school in high school and I ended up writing my college essay about the importance of family dinner. And I did get into those colleges. So I guess it was somewhat of a decent essay, but they really impacted me or they really must have impacted me. I actually forgot that I wrote about that until a couple of years ago when my grandmother actually found my essay and gave it to me because I think it was right when the Plan Simple Meals book had come out. And she was like, look, you've always been writing about this. Um, so that that's that's the truth. It came from there and it was different. You know, it wasn't about the food. It was about, but it was, there was this sense of rhythm. There was this sense of predictability. And we all know that, you know, in the preteen and teen years as a kid, like it can suck sometimes to go to school and be in that world. And then we come home and it was just really a landing place. And so we've always done that here. And it has had its different variations. Uh, The one thing I will say about dinner is, and I would hear this a lot when I was talking about this a lot more, and I was in the family dinner space a little bit more actively. I feel like I talk about it as much as I can right now, but there's a lot of other things that we're teaching at this point. And I, I used to always hear, you know, just make it happen whenever you can, which I totally agree. If you can only have Saturday morning breakfast, go for Saturday morning breakfast. And what I will say is there is something magical about the time of dinner because everybody has gone off and done their thing or had their experiences of the day. I even found this true when we were all in the house together during COVID. We've all experienced life in some way during the day. And dinner is like this coming together before we sleep for the night. And so there's a vulnerability around the time. There's a, a yearning for connection. So it really solves, um, it solves for something that needs attention at that time. And so I really, really encourage who, whatever you can make work for that. And I know we're all really busy at that time is just really impactful. So if, if you're going to do the weekends, maybe it's dinner on the weekends. All right, so what else do I have to say about dinner? So I guess, yeah, I guess that's just what I got to say. That, that's, that's what I have to say. It's an anchor. It's a connecting point at the end of the day. 
it's it's a landing pad for loving acceptance. And we'll get into some other things that other concepts that have been really helpful to me and a lot of them played out at the dinner table. So that's what I've got to say about that. And I do talk from time to time about how to make like the actual sitting at the dinner table and the food easier. But for right now, I'm just going to give you the concept of family dinner and hang around here. Um, come, come check into some of our workshops if just figuring out how to do it is something that's on your mind. All right, number two, never fix. Never try to fix. So this is a big one, and it actually plays out a lot. This is one of those ones that plays out a lot at the dinner table. And this was a really like intuitive thing to me as a mother. And then it was something that was also reinforced. Uh, my parents weren't big fixers of our problems, um, you know, maybe for different reasons than than I am. But I, I was modeled that, so I, I never... I never thought that that was the role of a parent to fix all the things and make everything better. I feel like that's a little bit more our age right now. And then I met the amazing Kim John Payne when I um, dove into Simplicity Parenting when my kids were little. And he talks about this a lot too. In fact, we'll link to his episode in the show notes because I think he went into depth on this concept as well. And it was also beautifully reflected by Trace Bell last week on the podcast. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that too. But so lots of origins of this one, lots of people backing this up. So the idea is, is that when a kid comes home and has had a really bad day or, you know, had a, some sort of interaction with a teacher or a friend and they're feeling really sad about it, of course, there's times when we have to intervene. I'm going to say that. But it's usually not when we think it is. It's not every moment. It's not every second. So yes, there are situations that need our attention in a different way. But a lot of times what's really needed of us is just to witness, just to witness and hold the space basically for them to be sad about something and be heard about what they are thinking about. And not to call the mom of the kid and not to call the school, but just let them say it out loud and let them sit with it and be with them while they sit with it and see what comes up. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that solves the whole thing. Sometimes then outside of the sadness, you can have a conversation about, you know, what they can do in the situation. And every once in a while down the road, it leads to having to have more conversations, but it's far less frequent, I think, than we, than we think. And this is definitely not the easiest thing. Like as parents, we really want to jump in there and help our kids. But this creates resilience. It's, I think, actually more loving than trying to fix because it's actually connecting to them. It's actually connecting to their energy. So when our kids are older, and this is what Trace was saying last week that his parents did so well is um, he was figuring out how he wanted to show up in the world as a spiritual being, was with older kids, and I would say older kids are like over nine, you know, maybe some inquisitive eight-year-olds, you can ask questions. Like, just ask a lot of questions. And if if instead of answering their questions, ask, an 
ask another question as a follow-up to their questions. And with younger kids, a tool that I used a lot when my kids were little was just being really conscious that I had listening eyes. And pretty much all this means is that like my attention, my vision, my ears, like I'm just looking at them. I'm paying attention to them. They can feel the energy of, of my eyes, looking at them and witnessing them. Um, and kids, sometimes that's all they want. Sometimes that's all they want because think of how often we're like, yeah, sweetie, I see you. <laughs> and we're like actually doing something very different or thinking about something very different. Like, yeah, I see you swinging. But they can feel listening eyes. And so that's a really that's a really important thing, I think, um, for them to feel as they're telling us something. But actually, it's also a really, both those things, questions and really listening are good ways for us to correct ourselves and not want to fix things. Because when we have our attention on really paying attention and really listening, generally that's not what you're going to do. You're not going to try to fix. The fixing is is sort of like when you're hearing a little bit, you're not hearing the full story, you're not feeling the full gesture of it, and so you just jump in there and want to fix. So those things serve two purposes for our kid, but also a lot for us, <laughs> which I love. One other thing I'll share with you, it plays into dinner and trying not to fix, is the notion of thorn and rose, which you've probably heard me talk about before. It's in the Plan Simple Meals book. It's I think I talk about it in my episode with Kim John Payne. But this has been a practice that my teenagers still will ask for from time to time. But it's a more um, organized way, let's say, to practice just showing up and listening and not trying to fix. And it, it's just like a game. And this is how it goes. So a rose is something great that's happened to you um, today. And a thorn is something a little hard, like something you're struggling with, something that didn't go quite as planned. And what we do is we, I should probably call it rose and thorn, because what you want to do is start with the rose and then do the thorn and then do the same thing for the next day. So you're basically sandwiching two hard things between two good things, which for a lot of humans just makes it easier to admit and recall the hard things because on either side of it we're sharing a good thing and some people have called this a happy sandwich whatever you want to call it it doesn't matter but it's more the reason that it's more of a formal um, practice is that the idea is that everybody goes around the table and shares their their roses and thorns and so it's really helpful if, especially if you have multiple kids and one's a talker and one's not, I found that this was really helpful in getting everyone talking about all the things and not holding anything inside, which is generally where, um, you know, a lot of stress and anxiety is created from, is from when our kids don't say things out loud. All right, those are my first two concepts. Here's the third one. You don't have to go to every game or every play, or I don't know, whatever your kid does. You don't have to go to all the things. And here's the origin of this one. It's, it's from Michael Thompson. That's who I first heard it say it. And I actually think he also explained it on a podcast here, um, although that's not where I initially heard it. I asked him to talk about it a little bit when he was on our show. And what he's, um, what he's noticed is that sometimes... When we go to the game as, as the mama, as the adult, 
we have this experience, obviously. And actually, this helped me with more than just my kids. This helped me with like humans in general. But we go and we experience the game in one way. So we might notice, you know, a kid pushing our kid, or we might notice that he was hanging out by himself, or she was hanging out by herself on the on the field and whatever. We might notice in a play that um, she tripped. And we might hold on to the wrong piece, or, or we might notice a really good thing and hold on to that. And our kid might have a whole different experience. Like, we might have experienced something as hard, and they might have had, like, the best time ever. Or we might have experienced something as so beautiful and amazing, and they might have been having a really hard time. So you see how easy it would be to, like, when you see them after the thing, to put all your stuff on them. And so uh, Michael's argument is that if we let them do some of this alone, knowing that they're like, that we're this safe container for them to come home to, but letting them experience it and come home and tell us their experience, then we have this opportunity to let them really process life as it's happening. And they tell their version, and we get to really hear their version. Now, we can obviously do this if we've gotten to the game, but it's just, it's harder. And so, for me, the other thing that I hear a lot and have experienced some as well is, you know, there's a lot to balance as a mother, as a parent. And so, sometimes one might need to do work instead of be at the game, or maybe the one that we rarely do as women is maybe we really need to take care of our body in some way or take care of our soul in some way. And we need some quiet time. We need, you know, to do some yoga. We need to do some reflecting. Um, we need to take a nap. And yet we're running around to do all these things. So not only does it serve our kids, but also hopefully what it also does is let us off the hook from time to time in a good way. Because so often, you know, we'll say, I just can't go today. Like, I literally just can't go because I'm so tired. But then we feel guilty about it. And so this is like, it's actually better if you don't go to every game. So do the thing that's really serving you and that you really need to do during that game. And then when you do go to a game, you will be so much more present and you will actually see your kid at a different level instead of talking to all the parents on the sideline and looking out of the corner of your eye and sort of catching the wrong thing. And that's usually when we reflect back to them the wrong thing. And you can, you'll really want to be present because it will be special. Um, and you might not experience that if you're there four times a week or even once a week. All right. You don't have to go to every game. Number four, talk about sex openly and early. And I would probably add all the things that we really want our flavor of on our kids. So money, drugs, alcohol, um, just all the things that get taught basically in middle school by awkward gym teachers. <laughs> And that causes all sorts of weirdness in our household. So this was initially taught to me by Dr. Sharon Maxwell. You can also go hear her podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes. And 
I went to a talk of hers when my oldest, who's now almost 18, which is kind of crazy, was in, I think he was in third grade. And she basically said that if you haven't told your kid about sex in second grade, you're like way too late. And I just remember my husband and I being like, wait, what? And her argument was that if you had a second grader and they lived on a farm, you know, they'd see the animals, they'd understand what was happening. And that there's all these things around them that are basically showing them what's happening, and yet we're not explaining. So this isn't about explaining all the details, but, you know, each age has an appropriate amount of details to share, and there's some amazing books on this concept as well. Um, I had, you know, right after I went to her talk, I came right home to tell my kids, and one of them really wanted to just read the whole book and one of them wanted us to tell them. So each child has their own way. But here's her point. Her point is that they're going to need to find out some of these things from other people. And actually, hopefully, at some point, they find they have sort of older mentor type people who are openly talking about such topics. Um, a little aside, if you have a teen girl or a tween girl and haven't checked out Eliza's Badass Girls. That is an example of a group of amazing group, I think, unlike anything in the planet of sort of older mentor type people who have these conversations with your kids. And even if you can find that, you being the place that they can always, always come back to is really important, like really important. Because then you're the safe place, you're the safe framework. So when something hard happens with a boyfriend, when your kid um, is nervous about if you have a girl getting a period, um, if something inappropriate happens at school in some way, like you're who they come back to, not somebody else, not a peer who has their own you know, belief systems, and we don't even know what they've been told. And so we really just want to be the place that they feel like, and if we're the source, then we become the comfortable place that they do come back and land with. And this has been so huge in our house, I have to say, and is also, we're going to keep going back to concept number one, which was family dinner, because yes, we do talk about everything at our dinner table. And very often it goes to things like sex. And it is just how it happens. And it's to me beautiful. And I'm so grateful that our kids will literally talk about anything with us. And, um, you know, it was a practice and I don't think it's ever too late, but to be that safe landing pad, that's what we want. We don't want to fix like in number two, and we don't want to like shield them from other people. But then when they go figure stuff out with other people, they can come home and ask us clarifying questions about concepts that, you know, we know better than kids. <laughs> so that's what I got to say about that. All right, here's the next one. Number five, hugs. Hugs have so much power. And this actually really speaks to the fix one. It, it speaks really to all of them, but sometimes words aren't needed. Sometimes all a kid needs is a big hug. And I know this sounds so obvious, but I will tell you, I had this little reminder when my kids were a lot younger. It was probably like, I don't know, maybe even 10 years ago. And I was hearing Danielle Laporte talk and I love her. 
And she was saying that she and her son were making this effort. And I think her son is the same as my son. So it's always fun when people you hear are also talking about their kids from time to time. Her and her son were trying to make sure that if they hug, um, they're always hugging for, I think it was over 90 seconds. Is that? I think that's right. Um, in my notes, I have 20 seconds, but I think it was 90 seconds. So we'll have to, don't quote me, but it was, what's interesting is hug a kid, hug a spouse, hug whoever, and notice how long it actually takes. And it's not very long. And so just staying there and staying in the physical connection, which I know we can't do with everyone right now in this strange pandemic world that we live in, but we can do with our kids, um, is just really healing. And no words are necessary, you know, no fixings necessary. It's just a hug and it goes a long way. And it's just, might I say, 90 seconds. So that was a fun one to get uncomfortable with. And I told my kids about it and we all started noticing how fast a hug was and how much more meaningful it was when it lasted longer. So that is a concept that has served me well. And pretty much every concept so far, um, talking about everything, but it was in sort of a different way, really, 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 really helped me this past year when I had a kid in crisis. And the fact that we had this dinner in place. And what I just want to say is that when I started some of these things, dinner included, there's all sorts of statistics about how, you know, family dinner prevents so many things. And so I kind of had been sold on the idea that if I was doing all these things, quote unquote, perfectly, I was preventing my kids from having any pain. And that that is not true. That's not what happened. But they served me so well in being there to meet whatever it is that they need me to meet them with. Okay, self-care. This is an important one. One that we moms, you know, don't always let ourselves quote unquote indulge in. It is not an indulgence. It is a necessary thing. Think about this. When your kids grow up, do you want them to take care of themselves? So a lot of times we don't let ourselves take the care of ourselves that we need to, and we sort of do it in the name of being there for our kids. But one of the main ways we're there for our kids is we're modeling for them. And what we don't do, they won't do. So if we don't take care of ourselves, they won't take care of themselves. Now, an interesting thing, little fun fact is that I grew up in New Orleans, and so it was like the South. And so I grew up with this sense that it actually was okay to take care of yourself. Now, I have to say, taking care of yourself in the South is like manicures and pedicures and, you know, good hair and date night was modeled because there was a lot of like parties and stuff. And, and definitely that was prioritized um, over being home sometimes. Exercise was big. I don't know if that was just the time I grew up. I grew up in the 80s <laughs> with like, you know, Jane Fonda. Um, so that was always modeled for me in terms of like, it's okay to take care of yourself. I didn't, it took me a little bit longer to figure out that taking care of myself didn't have to cost money. It wasn't about my hair and my nails. It was about taking care of my soul and taking care of my body at a much more basic level. Um, so, you know, when kids were just born, it was about remembering to take a shower and brush my teeth. And now it's really about 
cultivating a spiritual connection and meditation and writing and what led me to recording this podcast, the writing, and just things that, um, you know, are really taking care of me. And then basic things sometimes, even to this day, like remembering to pee. How long, how many of you have sat at your desk or, you know, done something with a kid and like needed to pee, but not taking care of yourself in your in that way? That is self-care. <laughs> sometimes, Working is self-care because it's taking care of taking care of yourself with the money that you need to do it in that way. A breath, going outside, connecting to the earth, going to bed instead of watching a movie can be self-care, but also not going to bed and watching a movie like with your spouse or a kid who's needing a snuggle could also be self-care. So there's no really right or wrong to self-care other than it's an amazing tool to model because it not only takes care of yourself, but it models something really important that you want your kids to have. My friend Kelly Grimes, who's been on this show, we will link to that too. There's a lot of links. This is going to be like a playlist. Wrote the book, The Art of Self-Nurturing. That's a really good starting point if you're like, I don't even know how to take care of myself and this was not modeled for me and I don't even understand why I would do this. That's a great book. Or if you're like ready for the next level and you just want to Take It Up a Notch, also a great book. Okay, next, The Power of a Good Story. So this sort of speaks to number two, Never Try to Fix, but there's a lot of power in storytelling. I learned this originally from Nancy Mellon, who's an amazing storyteller. She wrote a book, you can Google it on Amazon, about how to tell stories. It was one of my favorite books when my kids were little. Um, I've interviewed her before, but it was pre-podcast time. I have to go dig up that article and see if I can find it. Maybe I can, and I'll email it out to everybody. But basically, it's like, you know, your kid's not eating carrots at dinner. Instead of getting, you know, for this is for a littler kid, instead of getting angry or frustrated, like, tell a story about a carrot. Make them fall in love with the carrot, <laughs> right? Your kid's having a really hard time in high school. Tell a story about when you were in high school. It's also an antidote to trying to fix. Um, there's a whole bunch of storytelling has also become an important part of my healing as an adult. Um, I'm not going to quite go into that so much right now, but there's a lot of power in a good story. And actually storytelling, I'm sure, will be part of Easeful Motherhood. Um, Sill is amazing at using stories, really powerful myths to help us um, really understand the why of certain tools that we'll be teaching in that experience. Okay, number eight, define what quality kid time even is. We, I coach so many people who are trying to fit in just, you know, an outing to the zoo, um, this and that, and it's overwhelming and it's causing them to go out of balance, even though they're doing it in the name of quality time with kids. This was particularly true as we like came into the end of summer. I love this quote that's actually in the Plan Simple Meals book by Kim John Payne. It says, in the tapestry of childhood, what stands out is not the splashy blowout trips to Disneyland, but the common threads that run throughout and repeat the family dinners, nature walks, reading together at bedtime, Saturday morning pancakes. That's Kim John Payne. And I just find it so true. So define what quality time is. Maybe it's not 
going out. Maybe quality time can be spent alone in the car on the way to something. Um, Maybe it's a snuggle and a back rub. Maybe it's just you working and a kid doing homework, but the doors are open and like the energy field is open between you. Maybe it's having someone help you chop at dinner, like a kid and talking about the day. So you see how like these things actually are mutually beneficial and yet maybe more quality than the stressed out you that lands at the zoo or I don't know where older kids want to go, the mall. Um, uh, Here's another one. This is from Kim John Payne as well from Simplicity Parenting. If your kid is doing something and you're like calling them to dinner, go spend 30 seconds. Just go sit next to them, like match where they are. If you have a little kid, like maybe they're playing Legos, go on the floor and be like, hey, you're playing Legos. This looks so fun. Notice what they're doing and then say like, it's time for dinner. Will you come with me to go eat? And you've like given them this connection point, which literally took five seconds and you don't have to yell that it's time for dinner a hundred times, which I know we've all done. I've done too. Okay. And with that one, sometimes I just make a list for the season of like what quality time looks like given a given season, what's going on with my work, what's going on with the kids, what they're up to, all that stuff. Okay. Less can definitely be more. Less stuff, less clothes, less toys, less things in the schedule. You know, Kids are picking up on our energy more so than what we're doing. That's why that defining quality kid time was important. And all the stuff that we're moving around, it takes time and it takes energy. And there's, we can control that. And when I was on my year um, where I took my kids out of school and I was homeschooling them and I was on a book tour and my husband was with us for some of the time, but not all the time. I was essentially taking on more than I had ever taken on in my life. And it was so much freaking easier. And I pretty much attribute that to just having a trunk full of things that we didn't even use them all. Um, and so what what is it like to just go at a simpler pace? Um, I, If you have little kids, you know, once our kids get older, they start signing up for things and doing things. And, you know, we always have agreements as a family here, but when our kids were little, we didn't let them do any of the Saturday stuff. I know that sounds horrible, but I have to say now that they're older, like they're doing the things that they really want. They're doing great things and they're good at them. And we had our Saturdays when they were little. So that's what I have to say about that. So less can definitely be more. Okay, here's the last one. So this is a concept that's like been a thread all throughout motherhood. And just in the past year, I really understood it at a deeper level, maybe because I now have teens. (laughs) Um, And so I can see them really becoming themselves. But kids, like my job as a mom is to help my kids become themselves. And I know that sounds obvious. And like, of course, um, Syl, who I'm teaching this amazing easeful motherhood experience with who I'm really I just want her to mostly (laughs) be coaching because she's so amazing and has helped me so much um so 
she has a definition in her book, Mothering and Daughtering, that the job of a mother is to raise our daughter to become herself. So this is sort of this exact definition is riffing on that. And she really helped me see that this year as I was, you know, parenting in strange circumstances. And it's hard. Like, we don't want our toddler to cry in the grocery store, but that might be the most authentic thing that they're doing in that moment because we've overwhelmed them by taking them to the grocery store. Um, we might want our kids to wear certain clothes. We might want our kids, we might have an expectation for how they do in school. So, and that might not be the truest version of themselves. And so there's so many like systems and belief systems and just baggage that we carry and we put on our kids. So it's actually a little bit harder work than one might think to allow them to truly become themselves, I have found. And it's something I've been conscious of for a long time. So that's one thing I want to say. And we're definitely, this is a big part of useful motherhood. And the second thing is that I didn't really realize that I had been thinking about this for a long time until I was writing and coming up with what I would say to you right now. But when my kids when we moved when they were we, we were living in this very small apartment when they were all born in a more city situation and we knew we had to move out of the apartment if we were going to like grow happily and um so we were looking at where to move and I was looking at different school systems and I live in the Boston area I'm not from here it's very overwhelming all the different towns and all the different school systems and so I was looking at them but at the same time I was also looking at two private schools both of which I really thought I liked, just in case we stayed in the little apartment. Um, and we ended up moving, and I ended up really spending a lot of time and energy um, figuring out how I could make this one private school work, and here's why. Um, and now my high schoolers are in our town high school. It's all wonderful, but I, I could see at the beginning that this is what I really wanted for my kids. And so what happened is that I went to these two schools and one kindergarten I didn't love. Like it just felt like, I don't know, it felt really Pollyanna to me. And I went to this other kindergarten and it was bright and vibrant and so fun. And I could totally imagine my kid there. I ended up sending my kids, FYI, to the Pollyanna one because I got this advice from a very wise person to go back to each school and look at the eighth graders. Both the schools went K through eight. So I went back to both schools and I looked at the eighth graders. And at the one where the kindergarten I just absolutely adored, they were all sort of this like quirky alternative kid, which was exactly how I imagined my my boy at the time I was looking for him for kindergarten would be. Like they were just like, they were just adorable. And, but when I really looked, I saw that they were like all a little bit uncomfortable in their bodies they all pretty much looked very similar, like obviously like they had different facial features, but they were wearing like the same, you know, kind of alternative clothes. And I realized that I was like looking for this alternative situation, but it wasn't really that different than like the preppy situation. It was just they had been conditioned with a different set of beliefs. And it was during an election, so this was like really um, obvious. And it was during an election and the opinions were exactly mine, and I couldn't, um, I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, like we're putting these kids into a mold. And then I was at the other school, which I ended up sending my kids to, which is a Waldorf school. And I looked at the eighth graders, and 
They just, you could tell they were all themselves. Everybody had different styles. Everybody had different body sizes. Yet everybody was like just together. Like they're, they're, they, they were in each other's space really comfortably. They were talking. They were listening. You could just tell that there was like no one way that a child was supposed to be. And it was really interesting to me because the, the younger years were so much more structured than this other school. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, like there's age-appropriate ways to create a human who's really allowed to be themselves. And there is actually some structure in the beginning piece of it. And so this is all to say that this has been a long journey on my part of, you know, what it looks like to really allow a kid to become themselves. What work do I need to do basically in order to show up in a way that I allow that? Um, and, you know, what what structures do I have to put in place at home? But also who do I have to show up as a human? And that work has been so, so powerful. Um, and that is useful motherhood. So I'll say that again. So if you're, if that, if all of this sounds like I want more of this, please go check it out. We start really soon. Um, you can sign up through Sunday. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be just a small group of amazing. It's not going to be that small, but it's going to be a group. It's going to be small enough that you're going to have connection with mothers. And we're going to create groups of like mothers. And Syl is just so amazing. And everybody will have an opportunity to be coached by her. And yeah, just come check it out. So either use these 10 tips I would so curious to hear about yours as well. Like what has really helped you be the best mother that you can be? How do these play out in your life? Um, tell me anything you want. You can shoot me an email. You can come have a discussion on Instagram. Um, I'm just really excited to be thinking about this right now as we release our kids back into this strange world that is that is right now. I three months ago would have said post-COVID, but that's not where we are right now. So here we are, mothering the best way that we can. All right, you all, I will see you on the next episode of the Plan Simple podcast, and we will be talking to another great guest. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you want to check out Easeful Motherhood, go to plansimple.com and you'll see it at the top. You'll see a pop-up window come up. If you want to go directly, go to plansimple.com backslash easeful hyphen motherhood. Check it out. Come grab your seat. I am limiting the size. We have not quite reached that capacity, but we will. And I cannot wait to dive in to your motherhood and really figure out how you can show up in a way that really serves you and your family and the world in really new and exciting ways. All right.